Hi, my name is Harlan Krumholtz. I'm here at the American College of Cardiology meeting with two terrific guests to talk about an issue that is sometimes a little contentious, often confusing, and uh, these guys are going to help bring some light to this. I'm here with Sanjay Call from Los Angeles and Bob Harrington from Durham, North Carolina. And the issue is really one of the use of 2B3A inhibitors. We had a trial that was presented at this meeting, early ACS, that addressed the issue of early 2B3A inhibitors versus discretionary use a little bit later of 2B3A inhibitors of ACS patients who are being referred for PCI. But this, this opens up really a little bigger question for a lot of physicians. The number of studies that comes by around 2B3A inhibitors can sometimes uh, lead to your eyes glazing over because there's so many different strategies. There, the meds uh, are being recommended in different ways in the guidelines, and we're here to bring a little bit of illumination to this issue. So, Bob, we, will you start by just, we're going to start with this trial, and then we'll get into the more general issue and tell us a little bit about, about this trial in particular. So my conflict up front is that early ACS was run out of our group. So I hope that means you know about the trial. Uh, I, I hope so. <laughs> but uh, so early ACS dates back now. We, we were doing the trial for about five years. So let me set the stage six years ago. There's three pieces of, uh, of background that set the hypothesis. Number one, that in the PCI trials that had been done in the mid-90s, big benefit of 2B3 blockade at the time of PCI for reducing the periprocedural complications. Point two, in the placebo control, non-ST elevation trials that had been done, the pursuits, the prisms, the prism plus, modest treatment effect that when you look at all of the data, 30,000 plus patients, 10, 11% treatment effect, reduction of death MI at uh, 30 days. Third piece of uh, information, unclear as to whether or not that benefit of 2B3A was all concentrated in the peri-PCI period mm -hmm. or it might extend upstream. That was the background. So the hypothesis was that we tested was really a strategy question. Uh, for your 100 ACS patients that show up, is it better to treat them upstream with 2B3A, or is it better to selectively use 2B3A inhibitors at the time of PCI if you believed that the patient might benefit from it? That was the strategy that we, that we set out to the test. 9,500 patients, let randomized. Let me just ask you one thing as you looked into it. If you look at the pattern across the country, what's the predominant pattern uh, with regard at to At the this? time, five years ago, it was all over the map. Yeah. Uh, there were people who reserved it for the cath lab. There were people who reserved it for the cath lab, but only in a bailout situation, something that Sanjay and I have talked about. And there were people who treated them upstream. It was really all over the map. So we felt that there was enough scientific equipoise, enough community equipoise, that it was reasonable to do a clinical trial. Great, and then just to finish, 9,500? 9,500 9, patients randomized to the two strategies that you described. Uh, we, we, it was a global trial. The primary endpoint was 96 hours, a multiple composite of ischemic endpoints. But the trial was really powered for the secondary endpoint of the 30-day occurrence of death of myoclonal infarction. Primary endpoint at 96 hours because we expected that all the benefit would be in 96 hours. But we thought you had to show preservation of the benefit on the important endpoints out to 30 days. Trial misses on the primary endpoint. There's no statistical difference between the two strategies. At the 30-day endpoint, just looking at death MI, it also misses. But now, this is, to use your phrase, maybe not necessarily a, neutral, a negative trial, but maybe an informative trial. P-value on the 30-day outcome of about 0 0.07, 0 0.08. Interestingly, point estimates spot on the systematic overview that had been done seven years ago, about a 9, 10, 11% risk reduction 30 days. So. We can talk now about what it means or what well, people so think I'm it gonna means. I'm going to want to hear Sanjay, but let me just ask you, as your take home, what, what should clinicians take home from this? What are they? I think the number one take home is that, um, that a strategy of 
uniform upstream uses of 2B3 blockade is no better than a strategy of very selective in-lab use. We didn't test the in-lab versus no in-lab use. That, that wasn't part of the trial. So I think it's safe to say if you're an upstream user, probably don't need to think that that's an absolutely necessary and, thing and to do. And who were they using it, and who is this selective use in? So the selective use in this trial was troponin positive. 84% of the patients were troponin positive, advanced age, or uh, meaning above the age of 65, or um, ST segment depression. But this was essentially a trial of 84% troponin positive patients. Mm -hmm. And it surprised us that the treatment effect was that modest. You know, in the, in the overviews of troponin alone, 2B3A looked as though it had an accentuated Right, those benefit. subgroups were right. uh, much more pronounced. Didn't see it. Sanjay, you know, you've, uh, you and I have talked about this a lot. I know you have uh, some opinions about the size and magnitude and importance of it. Can you elaborate a little bit on what, how you interpret this and, and what you think more broadly about, about the use of 2B3As? Uh, first of all, I would like to congratulate uh, the Timmy group and the Duke group for conducting this trial. This trial uh, had to be conducted, and um, but uh, having said that, I don't think it's going to change our uh, practice pattern. We, we were not big believers in upstream management, um, and so I don't think this, uh, this is going to change our practice pattern. Uh, <clears throat> having said that, there were two interesting aspects of, of this trial. The first one was, a, it seems like this was a strategy trial, but uh, I think it started off as an issue of upstream versus downstream. And if you're varying two variables at, at, at one time, it's kind of difficult to interpret. What I mean by that is one group is getting 21 hours of uh, infusion of the drug and the other group is getting it at the time of a PCI, but, but only a select few are getting it. Okay, so when you vary two variables at one time, then it becomes a strategy comparison, which is what happens in the real world anyway. Yeah, that's what we're but, interested in but, but, but from a purist trial design perspective, it, it uh, offers uh, challenges to the interpretation of the data. Number one. Number two is um, the death and MI benefit that, that uh, Bob uh, mentioned about. Uh, I have difficulty with interpretation of that data. First of all, I think most of it was driven by periprocedural um, MI, uh, biomarker Are we talking about criteria. these data or the overview in the past? No, no, no. Uh, in, in the early ACS. In the early ACS, yeah. yeah, yeah most of it right. was driven by... In by fact, one of the most interesting things in the Kaplan-Meier curves is that there's very little action until that period of time when people start going to the cath lab and then in both groups. Right. And, there's, and there, there's the events jump up, which is telling you that this is... PCI mediated. Right. It's a PCI mediated phenomenon. And the biggest problem I have with the PCI mediated biomarker elevation criteria of myocardial infarction is that I don't know what it means clinically. Uh, the, 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 the evidence is inconsistent. There are many trials that have shown that it, it correlates with outcomes, and there are other trials that show well, it doesn't I'm, correlate with outcomes. Well, well, I'm not sure Bob thinks about this because he would be dinged if he didn't collect that information. What, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, Sanjay and I have had this conversation multiple times over the years. Uh, you know, our group and others have shown that there's a relationship between CKMB elevation, as defined, you know, myoconfarction, and longer-term mortality. Um, I absolutely agree with Sanjay that at the lowest levels, it's perhaps less associated, but it does appear to be a linear relationship. Uh, I believe that, you know, 10 times is upper limit of normal is worse than five times, which is worse than three, which is worse than none. Okay, let me just follow up with that. When you uh, consent your patients for elective PCI, what do you tell them what, what the uh, risk of heart attack is, Bob? What do I tell them what risk of heart attack? Yeah, I for an elective PCI. 
I tell them that the risk of heart attack is somewhere between about 6 and 10%. And, and there's still consent? So far, I've got a pretty good track record. <laughs> what about you, Harlan? What do you tell them? Well, I think, you know, you're alluding to the fact that most of us talk about clinical MIs. We don't really exactly. talk about the we, surveillance we, When MIs. we consent, and we tell them... By the way, I want to commend you if you are to them, but it's something to think about. Yeah, because, you know, when we tell... I'll tell you what happens at, at our institution. When, when, when we consent, we tell them the risk of heart attack is about half to 1%. Because if I'm a no, patient... I, 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 I tell them it's... Six to ten percent. Well, right. let me actually. This almost makes me think this is going to be a great subject for a future <laughs> talk. I, I want to just uh, bring this around though to the two B three A. So you're right. So, so the one of the issues in the trials, you now going more broadly, has been about the surveillance MIs and the degree to which this intervention can decrease them. I just want to hear from both of you because this really was just a, a taste for our viewers about you know some of the issues that people are grappling with. For each of you, I'm just curious. What are your recommendations in this setting now? Someone reads early ACS, they see the discretionary use, does it matter which 2B3A and should they be applying the same sort of selection to the best of their ability? Or are you saying, you know, these are really, uh, it's actually a lot closer, it's not even clear they should be using it, we need to look back to the beginning. So let me start with Bob and then Sanjay, I will give you the last word. Okay. So again, we didn't test the PCI question. We believe that that had been tested in the past. So I don't think it says anything about the elective use of these drugs at the time of, uh, of angioplasty. People who use 2B3 inhibitors for that reason, nothing in this trial that should dissuade them. I do think it should dissuade people from a wholesale use of upstream yeah. 2B3A. Now, we could get into the nuances of some of the, uh, the subgroups of patients who might benefit and have a low risk of bleeding, but in people who have very little to gain and clearly something to lose on the bleeding side, should not be a wholesale upstream use. And, now, and any thought about the other, uh, the other drugs in the class? I think that this is probably reflective of the small molecule class. I don't think we can say much about abciximab. Drug's very different, yeah. and, uh, and, and it's just not been tested in this arena. Now, at the time of PCI, in an ACS patient who's been adequately loaded with clopidogrel, et cetera, I think, Harlan, it's a judgment call, largely as was done in the trial. Um, in the trial, we had about a quarter of the patients get put on provisional or discretionary use. And maybe that's the right number. Maybe it's a little lower, maybe it's a little higher. I think it depends upon the kind of patients you're seeing. At the time of PCI in the trial, the troponin positive diabetic patients seemed, younger patients who don't have the bleeding trade-off, seem to confer the benefit perhaps larger than the others. But these are all subtle secondary analyses that I'm tying into the totality of the data. Sanjay, what's your view? Well, I think the most uh, rational and evidence-based use of these agents is in the high-risk ACS patients undergoing PCI. And so I agree with Bob that perhaps uh, 20 to 25 percent patients uh, are appropriate candidates for these uh, therapies. But I think we have to look at the overall balance between the benefit and risk. Uh, you alluded to the meta-analysis. Uh, there was a 1% absolute risk reduction death in MI at 30 days, 9% relative risk reduction. It took 30,000 patients to make the p-value significant. So the question we should be asking is that, is this a clinically important difference? And then if you balance that with a 1% increase in the risk of major bleeding, uh, to me, the benefit risk is a wash. And so I have always uh, sort of uh, tried to emphasize that when you have a benefit risk that's not clear cut, the evidence does not rise to the imprimatur of class 1A guideline recommendation. So the analysis you'll like that we're doing now is we're creating the three by three table, which is number needed to treat, number needed to harm in each of the nine boxes for the spectrum of 
low risk of ischemia to high risk yeah, of ischemia, okay. low, low risk, risk of bleeding, bleeding to yeah. high risk. Right. Because I think you're right, is that what you want to try to find is that sweet spot where the patients are most likely to benefit and least likely to be harmed. Because I think in the ACS population with this drugs, you're getting, at best, a modest incremental effect. And I think one of the challenges, and, and then I want to close with a comment, but one of the challenges is that those who have the highest risk of clot, that is, stand the most to gain, are also the highest risk of bleeding. bleeding They're often exactly. the same. So you can't are, find they, that sweet spot. You're not finding right. discordance. So yeah. whether you can find the sweet spot, it, it, it's very interesting. The, um, I, I just, this is also interesting to me with regard to all the attention to comparative effectiveness. You know, we have actually a lot of data on this topic. We have, it's been analyzed many ways, and yet here we have two very smart people who know the literature well who actually still differ, and it just shows you that with the complexities of our field, even with many trials and good data, that sometimes uh, decisions can be difficult. And I think it is because we're seeing this in many different arenas in cardiology, the trade-off between the efficacy with regard to thrombotic complications and the consequence with regard to bleeding and trying to figure out that sweet spot is a challenge. I look forward to your analysis, Bob, and I thank both of you for participating. Great, thanks thank for you. having us. Thank you for having us.